The date for the referendum has been revealed, the 14th of October, and the campaign has begun in earnest with uh, John Farnham's uh, You're the Voice, now the anthem for the Yes campaign. So we thought we'd start the campaign by looking back at the history of referendums in Australia and internationally and uh, think about what might happen on Referendum Day and beyond. Now, with their expert analysis, I'm delighted to welcome back to the Little Wireless program George Megalogenis. George is, of course, a journalist extraordinaire and the author of several books, The Australian Moment, I particularly liked. And sitting in the studio with me is uh, Matt Vautrup, and he's a visiting professor of political science at the ANU. Matt is an expert on referendums in democracies and dictatorships and has written uh, several books, including a book called Referendums and Ethnic Conflict. And uh, I welcome George and Matt. Matt, uh, it seems like governments around the world are using referendums more often to determine policy, even when they don't really have to do so. Well, that's right. I I call it the uh, too hot to handle type of thing. So increasingly, we disagree with the political parties we vote for. 50 years ago, we would agree with about 100% of the platform. And uh, and then you would just sort of go along with it. Now, um, a lot of voters want to have sort of bespoke policies. They want to have their political cake and eat it. And therefore, politicians become a bit scared. And then they promise referendums, lest people should be very cross at elections. Well, we should think of things like Brexit, the vote in Colombia on the peace plan, and, of course, same-sex marriage in Ireland. Yeah, well, also the, uh, the, the postal plebiscite you had here was also a case of a... A prime minister at the time who didn't quite have the party room with him, weren't quite sure what people agreed with and disagreed with, and then in a way sort of slightly chickened out and said, we'll just have a, a referendum on it so people can decide. So the elected representatives then sort of kick the political football back to the people. Um, but we, we see that increasingly, and, and people also increasingly probably make decisions that politicians wouldn't necessarily have liked. Now, Matt, drawing on what you have seen in referendums around the globe, what's the likelihood that this one will succeed? I think the likelihoods are relatively slim. It's not impossible. Um, I um, had the misfortune of predicting Brexit about three months before. Um, I used the same sort of statistical model that Philip Lowe used when he predicted the interest rates wouldn't go up, except I had slightly more success with this one. And um, and I, you sort of start with a baseline of 56%, the government is ahead. If you have then compulsory voting, you knock another 7% off from that. Uh, and then if, if we, for every year the government's been in office, you uh, subtract uh, another percentage, per percent, and therefore you end up with uh, 48%. That's what I said last year, and I still hold to that. Now, the lack of bipartisanship is a big factor in this one. That is a big factor in this one. Australia has a dismal record of uh, of referendums. Only 18% have passed, and that's you know completely in contrast with places like Ireland or Denmark or, or other places where uh, most constitutional reforms are supported by the, both sides of politics, um, and uh, and they 
tend to be, I mean, that's probably reasonable because you wouldn't change the uh, the rules of the game if only one side wants to get rid of the, the offside rules in soccer. But um, because of that, and that's the main reason for that, if you have bipartisan support, you typically get uh, about 70% support, but that's what we don't have in this country. I'm astonished to learn from you that Switzerland has about 16 referendums a year, which are almost entirely passed. Yes, uh, and the reason for that is that uh, most of the laws that are put to a referendum in Switzerland are supported by the far left as well as the far right and the middle ground. Um, And if they feel they can't get it through, they will, you know, tweak the laws so that they become more palatable to the people. I mean, the Swiss are the odd ones out. They vote four times a year on on typically four propositions. Uh, But the interesting thing is that Switzerland also has a double majority. Switzerland basically has the Australian constitution in an alpine setting, uh, complete with (laughs) double majority. But they also, and that's a difference, the Swiss also like to have consensus. They like to agree on things. Most people in Switzerland cannot name the prime minister or the president because most issues um, are, 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 are policy issues. The Swiss know a hell of a lot about policy, but very little about politics, and that's in some ways quite refreshing. I, I, I find that absolutely attractive, the thought of not knowing the name of the Prime Minister. What a blessing that could be. Maybe we ought to relocate to Switzerland. <laughs> now, George, uh, we've only had eight out of 44 referendums succeed, so what's your bet on this one? Well, of the eight, only one was moved. Was the question was written by a Labor Prime Minister? Mm. So the it it's really one out of twenty odd that the Labor side of politics uh, have put to the people. So the odds aren't that good for it getting up. The only thing, the only, and I've been thinking about this for quite a while now. Uh, the only thing that we uh, don't know is whether the the ground game, the so-called ground game, whether the community movements in and around the Yes campaign, and there's a few of them, if you think about the teal, the successful Teal candidates, for example, in their in their individual electorates were able to drum up a 1,000 volunteers and a million dollars worth of uh, uh, contributions for that campaign at that individual seat level. The Yes campaign, from what I understand, has many people volunteering and probably a lot more money than it knows what to do with and probably had some clarity, even though it didn't come from the official Yes campaign, the, the, the John Farnham uh, voice ad has come from the Uluru Dialogue, which was, which was the group that originally came up with the um, Uluru Statement from the Heart. They, between them, they've got a lot of people wanting to volunteer to uh, knock on doors, uh, hand out leaflets at train stations and the like, and just, make, and just generally make a noise. The No side doesn't have that. The No side has... Well, it has, uh, you know, two and a half party system, obviously. The Liberals and the Nationals are both saying no. So 30 to 35% of the uh, voting population are automatically a no because of that decision. And then over and above that, there will be there will be votes leaking uh, in every which direction. So it's, it's, it's tricky on the, on the two-party question. It's tricky to see it getting up. But as I say, the thing that I'm not sure about We'll know in a few. I think we'll know in the next couple of weeks if the polls do move back up again. We're not sure that they will. Whether that whether that ground game that the yes camp has, whether the sort of um, sort of desperation to get the thing over the line, sort of 
brings it back into line ball territory. George, you believe that uh, it was in the interest of Dutton and the coalition uh, if the referendum passed. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I don't know how many times I need to write this column. And it's obviously not what the monthly piece was about, but I wrote a column at the beginning of the year, an Australia Day column, which basically walks you through uh, who, who we are and who we are becoming. And who we are at the moment is a majority migrant nation. More than half the population is either born overseas or has at least one migrant parent. Uh, old Australia, non-Indigenous people who have been here for, for three generations or, or longer, that is, that is the shrinking part of our population base. And I use the metaphor of the family tree. Indigenous roots, first Australians, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, about 4% of the population. That is the fastest growing part of our family tree and the second fastest part growing part of our family tree are the new Australian branches. In that country, in the next 10 years, uh, you're going to have a number of uh, groups outnumbered, groups that we traditionally viewed as sort of being central to our identity. Uh, Indigenous-born Australians will outnumber the English-born in Australia for the first time since the 1820s. Uh, the migrants and their children will outnumber the local-born, the non-Indigenous local-born in every capital city bar Hobart. Uh, uh, in the next 10 years. And nationally, uh, the Indian population and then uh, sort of a little behind them will be the Chinese-born population will outnumber the English. In that world, how do, you, how do you hold that country together if you decide to take the shortcut of blocking an Indigenous voice to Parliament in 2023, when in 2025, 2030, 2035, we are a very ver diverse and very, uh, you know, overwhelmingly majority migrant nation. I think Peter Dutton's problem on behalf of his constituent, right, old Australians, who may be able to who may be he may be able to get enough of them to knock this thing off. Uh, new Australians would say to old Australians, well, if you don't want to compromise, then we're about to redefine the country in our own name when they when when it's clear that they're outnumbered. I don't want that to happen, mind you. I mean I don't want to wake up one morning and decide that my tribe, first and second generation Australians, have finally taken over the country on behalf of our simple majority. I'd like to see the country uh, be able to tell a story on behalf of everyone. Matt, is it customary for a leader whose government has put a referendum to the people and failed for that leader to fall on his or her sword? No, it's very unusual for that to happen. We have some spectacular examples of Charles de Gaulle in France and David Cameron in Britain. But as a general rule, I think the statistics will say it's about 4% of leaders who resign uh, after they've lost referendums. Referendums are about issues, not about individuals. And some of them can bounce back. I'm old enough to remember Menzies uh, bouncing back from his failure to make the Communist Party illegal. Yes, and I think in some ways that sort of like echoes what George was just saying, because if you paint yourself into a corner as Everett did in in fifty one, uh, you know Menzies and the and the Liberals could basically go on for two generations. And say, well, that's because you are in cahoots with uh, with with people who are on the far left side. And here, in in the same way, I think you can win a referendum um, by being slightly extremist and being slightly unnuanced. But then when election day comes along, people wouldn't have forgotten that. So some of the most successful leaders in Australian politics were the ones who've lost referendums. Bob Hawke, I think, lost... Uh, 
six referendums altogether and went on to win elections, in, in, including, I think, one on trial by jury and human rights in 88, which was knocked down by the then leader of the opposition, John Howard. And nevertheless, the Labour Party went on to win, I think, you know, two elections at least after that. So, so winning elections and and, um, and losing referendum is almost a pattern in Australia, as indeed it is in many other countries as well. Uh, back to you, George. Uh, Dutton has announced that he will conduct a new referendum if this one fails. I find this incomprehensible. Um, not sure it came out the right way. I think he he had a position that we are for recognition and we are for um, local and regional voices, but we're not for the Prime Minister's voice. So that was the political construct. He gets a question, and in fact he's he, he sort of left himself out there for too long now because no side is winning and he's probably best advised to to uh, to, quietly, <laughs> to quietly leave centre stage and just let it happen. He gets a question, well, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do once you knock this thing off? And he says, oh, well, well, let's have another one. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. And I'm not sure that he even, he, beyond just answering the question, sort of get around that question, he's actually thought through the consequences of what he just said. It may he's have made it may have made some sense to Matt, who's raised a finger. Well, that's because I, I'm a nerd, and I know that's quite sad. But uh, but of course, Australia wouldn't have come into being unless you've had a second referendum. And a New second South one, Wales. absolutely, absolutely. New South Wales voted no to joining the whole enterprise, um, as indeed Rhode Island voted no to joining the USA in in 1787, and the other ones forced them in. But but so so you've had a number of situations in Australia. I think simultaneous elections was rejected twice in. The, in the 70s. Um, so that was a, a thing that was first rejected under Whitlam and then was rejected under Fraser as well. Uh, and, and in a number of places around the world, actually Switzerland is an example of sometimes if the voters don't like a thing, uh, then the politicians will try to make it more sort of palatable. Um, so that is the nerd speaking from a global perspective, but I think you're probably right, George, that he didn't expect this one to be coming. And I think in some ways he hasn't probably done his homework on referendums before he saw that. But but I will defer to you on matters in Australia. Matt, sorry, George, we're running out of time and I want to put this to Matt. I understand that you're now planning on extending your time here to watch the referendum unfold. And one of your favourites was our 1967 one. Yes, when I was at university in Oxford um, way too long time ago, David Butler, who was a great keen student of Australian politics, always asked me what my favourite referendum was, and I was a little bit sort of like I, I wasn't quite sure. And he says, there can be no doubt in anybody's mind that has to be the 1967 referendum because it was a referendum of that showed that a country had moved on, that it was ready to recognise people that hadn't previously been recognised. So just like my country, like Britain, around the world was seen as committing almost sort of collective suicide over Brexit and we got a bad press over that, you got an incredibly good press when you voted yes to that. And... Um, I dare say there have been a number of people who know that I am in Australia who've said, why are they voting no to that? That's not great for Australia's image. Um, and I'm not saying whether it is or it isn't, but it's interesting that people have noted that around the world. George, will it be a photo finish? And is there any chance yes will get its nose ahead? I think there's a, I think there's a chance yes gets its nose ahead on the national vote and may even get three states. Four states seems a bit, a bit of a stretch. Uh, 
there's something – I mentioned the ground game earlier. I'm not sure how all those volunteers are going to go in the next five to six weeks. They'd have to knock on every door in Australia to, to, to put the yes case in with a chance. There's something else which is – and this is the unknowable – whether – uh, whether the soft no voter or the dunno, the person who's not sure at the moment, uh, marches into the ballot box and in the privacy of the ballot box thinks, do I want to do I do I want to split the country, or do I want to just get this off the page? Yes, it's not going to affect me. Let's just do it. There was there was uh, this sense that this is the way it was going to go about six months ago because remember the poll started in the 60s for yes and. And the no vote was very low. That's obviously not what the polls are telling us at the moment. And I tend to take those polls, even though you would take them with a grain of salt, you tend to think that uh, the last three or four months have been pretty awful for the S case. I still think there's a chance, uh, and but I think it, it, it's almost in the cosmos. It has to be something that happens collectively that we can't see at the moment. Gentlemen, thanks for your time. I've been talking to George uh, Megalogenis, uh, journalist extraordinaire, and he has a piece on the referendum in the current issue of The Monthly. And uh, Matt Vortrup is a visiting professor of political science at the ANU. Oh, a postscript. Laura Tingle will be back with us soon. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.